whole Bible in 31 weeks, and uh, right now we're in the time period of towards the end of the exile. So when you're reading through uh, the major and some of the minor prophets, that's around 600, uh, 700, 600, and 500 B.C. And so if, uh, if you're interested in following this with us, all of our uh, Sunday school classes, children's, uh, the teens, and the adults, we're all studying this in Sunday school class. Uh, so if you don't have one of the books, we'd be glad to give you one. At the end of the hall, down around the children's uh, uh, registration area, we've got some extra books. After church, there'll be somebody that you can pick one of those up. It's called The Story. Well, how many of you remember something called a paper map? Yes, children. Yes, children. There used to be these maps that were folded in fan style and you go, and that's the way that you learned how to get to Podunk, New Mexico or wherever it was. You had to figure it out yourself. I remember getting on the road, going uh, somewhere, and I knew I had to stop at a gas station right before or right after the state line. Why was that? Because that's where you picked up that state map. There's no Louisiana maps in Missouri, I can tell you. But as soon as you get close, you can pick up a map of the gas station, and then you can figure out the next stage of your trip. I remember uh, Darla and I had just got married in 1988, and, and in 1989, in July, we decided to take our first family vacation to Colorado, uh, to Loveland, Colorado area. And now, I had driven that route several times. Well, I hadn't driven. I had actually ridden several times. And this was our first time that we were to drive as adults. And we got in our 1970-something Buick that was a real gas guzzler ship. And uh, I remember going first to AAA. And you might remember back then that you could go to AAA and they would give you a free map. And they would even highlight where you were going. And they would give you a red, uh, I mean like a yellow, green, and blue options. Here are three options to get to Loveland, Colorado. And I remember getting that map and sitting down and studying it, and that's how you figured out how to get to certain places back in the bad old days before this interweb thing came about. But then we got this thing called a GPS that kind of sat on your dash. Anybody have, did you have one of those? Yeah, well, back those first, the first versions, you had to kind of download them from the internet and and they, about every year you had to update them. That way you weren't coming to the, a dead end of a road and going, it says I'm supposed to go, why is the dead end, right? So they were kind of old-fashioned, and you can choose the, the type of person, whether male or female or, or whatever. I, the lady that talked to us was uh, from Great Britain, and she had an accent, accent. And to this day, I can remember that if I ever made a wrong turn, she would say, recalculating. Did, you, did your lady tell you that? She said that to me often, recalculating. She, she kind of had a bit of a, she was upset at me every time she said it, I knew. It was like, 
every time I turned the wrong way, I knew she would want to go, seriously, come on. What, what is up with you? I mean, why do you, recalculating, she always was upset at me. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. In this book, we have a story about the Israelites, and I'm sure if they had a GPS, she was constantly saying, ah, what is up with you guys recalculating? Here's a question that I would like to answer this morning. What does God do when we get off track? What does God do when we get off track? The stories in this time of the Israelites' history answers this question over and over. Let me give you a bit of a back back story. The children of Israel have been exiled into Babylon, which is mostly the country that we call Iraq today. They were encouraged to learn the Babylonian language, the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian idol worship, and they had to live there for 70 years. They knew that their home country, home city of uh, Jerusalem, and even their temple had been totally destroyed. It had been razed to the ground, most of it. They heard this news. They read the papers they, they, had, they had visitors who would come and say, man, let me tell you what the temple now looks like. One of the worst things that they heard, though, was that the sacred instruments, the sacred furniture that had been sanctified for holy use in their temple had been stolen and was now being used for unholy worship, idol worship. So for 70 long winters, they wanted to go home. But after seven decades of darkness, seven decades of of loneliness, seven decades of desperately wanting to go home, finally a tunnel of sunlight begins to pierce their hearts and they begin to hear the possibility that they might be able to go home. And surprisingly, the good news comes from a very ungodly leader, a Persian leader by the name of Cyrus. Would you please stand in honor of reading God's word? I will be reading Ezra chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7. My friends, what I'm about to read to you is God's word. It's ordained by himself. It has authority and it'll radically change your life if you'll listen and obey. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me 
to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Pause. Remember, this is an ungodly king. Okay? This isn't a prophet. This is an ungodly, idol-worshiping king. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may, be, may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the best ways to understand a hard passage of Scripture is to ask it questions. Journalists do it every day. They ask, who, what, when, where, how come, right? I mean, this is the way the story is pulled out of the people they're interviewing. I found myself asking the same type of questions in this story. The first question we have to ask is, who did God use? Basically, who did God use to, to get the Israelites back on the path of fulfilling the responsibility as being God's covenant people? That's the question. Well, who did he use? Well, he used a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus had founded the Persian Empire, which included Babylon, uh, while the Jews had been exiled there. Persia, Persian Empire became the largest empire in ancient history. Its borders on the west were the Balkan Mountains of Eastern Europe, all the way to the Indus Valley in India. That's a pretty large chunk of land, right? So that included what we now call Bulgaria and, and uh, Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Iran and Pakistan and all of the other countries that we now end with an or stan. That's the Persian empire of that day. He was also a pagan king. He was not a godly king. 
God used a pagan king. He worshipped many other gods, but acknowledged the God of Israel was one of the gods. In fact, he is the biggest and the best God that he would, he, he would say, but he still worshipped other gods. So that's who God used. What was provided by, by uh, this king? Well, the first thing that Cyrus provided was freedom for the exiles to go home. He made a decree that the Jewish exiles could be released to go back to Israel to rebuild their temple. He said, any of his people among you, any of God's people among you, let them go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who was in Jerusalem. So he said, listen, release these people to go back to their home country to rebuild their temple. He also provided free resources. That was a tremendous gift. He wanted them to succeed in building the temple. So in verse 4, he said, provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. They were given what had been stolen from them in the temple. You remember me talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar kind of bragging about, about using the instruments that he had stolen in the temple for sacrifices and either evil celebrations. This is what Cyrus is now talking about. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed them in the temple of his God, little G-God. It was gold, there, uh, there were gold dishes, uh, 30 gold dishes. There were a thousand silver dishes. There were 29 silver pans, 30 gold bowls, and there were matching silver bowls of 410 all of this gold and silver had been dedicated, had been sanctified, meaning set aside for holy use in the temple in Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar had stolen them, so Cyrus said, send them back. They were giving offerings and gifts by their neighbors. All of their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold and with goods and livestock, valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. So all of these evil people that had been, had been enslaving God's people, they said, okay, here's some cow, here's some sheep, here's some, some gold, here's some money. Take it, go. That was a tremendous gift. Well, why would God use a pagan leader to provide freedom and resources to the exiles? It's interesting that God would choose a pagan king to do this. Doesn't it seem odd that God, who has the ability, if he wanted, just to snap his fingers and all of a sudden all of this was the... Why would he use a pagan God and pagan people to provide freedom and resources so they could go back? That's, that's always been a question of mine. In this series, we've been talking about the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is what we see. It's a perspective that we can only see just a little part of what's going on, and we don't see what all of the other movements of God. 
is happening all at once. The upper story is God's view. He sees all of our little story and how he's purposely trying to tell one primary story, and that is he loves us so much that he is inviting us back into a wonderful, warm relationship with us, the same type of relationship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. That's the upper story. He sees that. Well, the lower story in this particular story is that it doesn't make sense to us that God would use an evil king to provide resources and freedom. It just doesn't make sense. God was using someone who had who provided tainted resources, an evil king, to build a sacred dwelling place of God himself. It would, in our day, it would be a bit like a mob boss that had murdered dozens, writing our church a check to pay off our debt. That, that's a bit, a bit like what they, they were scratching there. It, it, it would, if you had won that lottery of two or three weeks ago, the $1.6 billion lottery, uh, and you would have handed in the, uh, the tithe to that, can I just say, I would say, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That, that money had been used for evil way too long. In the name of Jesus, it's dedicated to God, right? That was the context of what was happening in this story. An evil king took ill-gotten gains to provide it to God's people so that they could rebuild the temple of God. But there is, but that's the, the lower story. That's what they were seeing but there's this bigger upper story at work in the mind of God here. I think one of the reasons why he chooses a pagan king to help build a temple is to send a message to his community. So why use a pagan leader? Well, first, it fulfilled God's original desire for his people. What was... And is God's original desire for his people then and his people today. God's original intent, and still is, is to build a perfect community where he can be in the presence of his people forever. In, wonderful, in a wonderful relationship. Fellowship in the cool of the day. That is God's original intent and it is his current intent. He wants to bring us into relationship with him forever. So God uses a king, a pagan king, to make it happen even when he couldn't get his covenant people to listen to his voice. Throughout many generations, they were deaf to God's voice of grace and mercy. He provided prophets and miracles he brought destruction he brought pain and all of these were to bring people back into relationship with him but again why use a pagan leader using a pagan leader to build god's temple was certainly newsworthy and it attracted a lot 
of attention. Remember one of the responsibilities that was placed on the people of the covenant, which were the Israelites, one of their great responsibilities was to show all of the non-believers who God was through their own actions. Having a pagan king make it possible for the temple to be rebuilt was another way that God got all of the unbelieving countries around the, the known world to look at what in the world is going on here. I'm sure it showed up on the front page of the, of the newspapers, whatever they had back then. Everyone heard a Persian king who's an idol worshiper. He gave the money to let the people go back be in freedom. That was newsworthy after 70 years of exile. Now you might be wondering what the importance of this one temple was for even what the importance of just having a temple uh, anyway i want to talk to you just a little bit about that we haven't spent a whole lot on the temple but why was the temple so important for the israelites god was all powerful he was everywhere all at once omniscient omnipotent omnipresent he could have easily have done something different but instead he told them i want a place it became this physical building became a physical reminder the temple reminded the people that god wanted to enter into their community he wanted to be a part of their relationships he wanted to be a part of their finances. He wanted to be part of their medical decisions. He wanted to be part of their cleanliness. He wanted to be a part of their relationships and their marriages and the, the children and grandchildren. All of these things, God wanted to be very physically present with them. So he said, build a temple. And by building a holy temple, it will show the, the, the world that I want to be with you, doing life with you as a part of you. And for the children of God, the temple was a physical place to remind them that God was with them all the time. The temple also reminded them that God wanted to be the center in the center of their lives. Do you remember where the temple was built? Yes, we know Jerusalem, but where was it? It wasn't in the desert. It wasn't in a cave somewhere. It was smack dab in the middle of the most populated city of ancient Israel. It was the government center. It was the financial center. It was, the, com it was the, the community center. It was where everyone came right there in Jerusalem. And it was at the highest point in all of the land. It could not be hidden. Everyone could see Jerusalem from far away. Every time someone 
walked past the temple, they were reminded that God wanted to be with them. He wants to be in their neighborhood. He wants to be important to them. That's why the temple was important. But it was also a spiritual reminder. The temple reminded the people that there was a sin problem and that sin separated man from God despite their best efforts. And because of sin, ordinary people could not even enter the temple. Because sin required a blood sacrifice that was offered by a priest so generations so for generations the temple stood as a reminder that only the only way to have access to god was was to go through a blood sacrifice asking for the forgiveness of god before they entered into the sanctuary it was a physical reminder that god wanted that spiritual, the separation that sin caused, he wanted to meet that need. And he wanted to bring them back into relationship with him. It was not just a spiritual reminder and a physical reminder, but it was a future reminder. Now from our perspective, we see this whole story leading up to the cross. We have read the end of the book. We've read from Genesis to maps, right? So we know the entire story. They didn't. From our perspective, we know the whole story, and it leads up to the cross being that final sacrifice. It was a little harder for the Jews that day, during that day. The temple was an educational tool for the future. It prepared them for when Jesus came, the people could connect the dots more easily because the temple reminded them sin requires a sacrificial death. Jesus was our sacrifice. Here you go. It was the physical reminder so that when Jesus came, they knew the process. And that Jesus would be that final answer. So back to the story. In 538 BC, 50,000 Jews, we believe, prompted by God and funded by a pagan king, Cyrus, made a 900-mile trek west from Babylon to Jerusalem. God's big thing now became their big thing. And they began to roll up their sleeves, put their tools in their belt, and they began to clear away the rubble and pull the weeds and try to organize things, try to get things to the point where they could kind of understand what the mess was and what the next steps were to, to rebuild. Well, I've, I've learned that during my time as pastor is 
Whenever you attempt to do something big for God, what can you always count on? Opposition. You can always count on opposition when you're trying to do big things for God. For the Israelites, dissenters tried everything they could to block the efforts. There were interference from outsiders, but they continued to persevere. They even had interference from within. Too big of a job, cost too much. It'll take way too long to rebuild this. Let's just forget about it. No. But they made God's priority their priority. At least for a few years. Little by little, God's people who had just been released from exile began to lose their focus. They began to focus more on their own personal projects. Their own home needed to be built before God's home was built. They began to focus on building their jobs and their career. They began to focus more on their own happiness instead of fulfilling God's call on their life. Maybe stacking stones was too tiresome. Maybe the criticism was just too sharp. And one by one, they quit showing up for work. And before long, God's big thing had become a small thing for the Israelites. Now, I can't prove this, but I, I can almost guarantee they never intended to abandon the project forever. The Israelites probably said, well, we'll get back to it. Maybe next week, maybe next fall when we've got our harvest and then we'll focus on it. In a year, maybe our finances will be better in order. I've got to make sure that I've got the roof over my house, my, our family's head and I've got my business all planned out, and there's these things that I've got to get done. And one week went by, and a month went by, a year, and five years, and 16 years passed by. Enough time for the weeds to grow up again. And squatters begin to come into the temple and live. And it became an abandoned construction project once again. Enough time now for the neighboring countries to look in and see the pictures on the front page of the paper again and go, hmm, I guess, I guess those Israelites don't take their God very seriously. That's interesting. Enough time for a whole generation of children to grow up now and think, well, I guess our parents don't care much about the temple, so I guess we don't have to. Meanwhile, as God's house was languishing, 
their own personal houses flourished. The minor prophet Haggai speaks of their turn in their priorities. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. It is a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while the house, while this house, God's house, remains in a ruin. And the former exiles now focused solely on their own comforts, their own interests, only to become more miserable as the days pass. Have you noticed that when we refuse to pay attention to God, he has a way of getting our attention? Anybody notice that? He puts a chill in the corner office. He puts a sourness in our stomach. He puts a dent in the savings account. He permits a drought to come on the farm. He sends a lonely wind through the bedroom. When our priorities become more important than God's, our lives are marked by futility. Haggai goes on to tell the Israelites what God thinks of their selfish focus. He says this. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful attention, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I want to be very careful with this message. I don't want to give us the impression that every tiny mishap is a discipline by an angry God. That is not what I mean at all. And that's not what the scripture teaches. Every time you have a hangnail, it's not because God is angry with you. Every time you get a flat tire, it doesn't mean that you should be driving an older car. That's not what God does. The Bible does tell us that the sun rises on the evil and the good and the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. So things happen. We're all going to have to deal with stuff and we don't have to blame God every time we stub our toe. But there are seasons in our lives that are difficult and challenging because God has intentionally invited us and caused us to go through a challenging time for certain reasons. Times of exhausted emptiness when nothing seems to work and sometimes it's times when doesn't matter what you do, you're always thirsty spiritually. Times when no achievement satisfies this restless hunger, times when we plant but our harvest is dismal. God allows times of difficulty, as Haggai says, to give careful thought to our ways. 
in our lower story. We often grind away at life and never seem to get what we are looking for. But there's this upper story that's going on and God is practically yelling at us in the top of his lungs, consider your ways, friend. I have so much more for you if only you would let me live with you. God not only desires to be with us personally, but he desires to be with us on a national level. I read the news daily, my friends, and so do you. And I shake my head. Thinking, oh Jesus, can you redeem me? Can you bring wisdom? Can you bring civility? Can you bring forgiveness? Can you bring godliness back to our land? And I'm confident he is calling out Washington, D.C. Consider your ways. I want to be with you, but not if you make decisions that remove me from your schools. Not if you're going to kill my babies. Not if you overlook my honor for young ladies. So what should this story encourage us to do? The first is give careful thought to where God fits in the order of your priorities. Give careful thought to how God fits in the order of your priorities. Are you eager to spend time with God in conversation? Are you eager to hang out with him? I've told you many times that in my mind, I see God every morning excited to be in our presence. That is a picture I have a hard time understanding. Why in the world would God want to be with me? He created me. He is God of God's King of Kings. But it's like he's giddy with excitement that he wants to fellowship with me and you. Are you eager to spend time with him? When, when Darla and I were dating back in the late 80s, I, I remember wanting so bad to be with her. I lived in Overland Park and she lived in North Kansas City and it was a 26-minute drive. 26 minutes. And even at 9 o'clock at night, I thought, okay, I have time that I could drive 26 minutes, say goodbye to her, goodnight to her, maybe kiss her, and they get back by 10 o'clock. And I did several times. You know why? Because I loved, love her so much that I wanted any opportunity to love her, to kiss her, to hug her, and say goodnight, even if it meant I had exactly eight minutes before I had to drive home again. I love you, honey. That's the relationship that God has with us. I can just imagine God going, okay, if, if I could intersect with him at this moment, we could just have five minutes together. We can talk 
I can just see him giddy that he wants to be in relationship with us. That's how God thinks. He loves us so much that he wants us to put him high priority just like he puts us high on his priority. But there are times when we allow our children, our resources, our job, our bank accounts to be relegated to the top. And we begin to push God lower and lower on our list, unfortunately. Now, I want to be honest. There are times that, that we put God last in our worship. There are times when we decide, oh, I don't need to go to church today. This is way more important. And I'm going to focus on that. They'll understand. God will understand. And And let me just encourage you. Can I remind you that when we are putting God first, even on Sunday morning, the child that's watching us is saying the same thing as the children of the Israelites when they watch their parents not build the temple. Eh, mom and dad don't think it's that important, so why should it affect me? Why should I put God first? Let me just encourage you, parents and grandparents, make sure your children are watching you read the Scripture. Make sure your children watch you get on your knees and pray. You could pray silently. You can pray in another room with a closed door. Can I just encourage you? When you're praying, leave the door open so they witness you. So that they see you get down on your knees at the dining room table and say, Kids, this is important. And we're going to pray until God gives us an answer. We're going to pray until the resources come. We are going to do this as a family because we want our children to be a part of the decision to put God first. Is there an amen in the house? Determine that God will be the first in every area of your life. Determine that God will be first in every area area of your life there comes a time when we no longer wake up thinking about God's temple when slowly we have put him second and third and fourth place it's just like the Israelites I'll wait a week I'll wait a month we'll get started next year when the when the harvest comes then we'll start a time comes when we set our time with God aside so many times that we forget that it was even a time in the first place. Tithing becomes, eh, tipping. Prayers just become dry words. Church attendance happens only when you don't have something else important scheduled. It's not that we forget God, it's just that he has not become that important anymore. Determine that God will be first in your life and in your family's life in every way. I love the question, if you were brought up before a judge with the charge that you are a sold out Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you. 
Haggai said, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Prophet Haggai spoke the truth. He told them to give careful thoughts to their priorities. Because one decision sets a course not just for a father, but your decision sets courses for your children, for their children, for their children. One decision sets that course. Would you please stand? Joseph Stoll is or was the president of Moody Bible College in Chicago. He tells the story of when uh, his parents and his wife and his daughter, uh, his son, Matthew, uh, went shopping during Christmas season. It was very busy. The rush was all about and there's a very large crowd in the mall and they realized that little Matthew, three and a half years old, was gone. Grandma and grandpa and mom and dad were like, oh no. Each of the adults rushed to their assigned locations to look for little Matthew. Horror stories began to run through their mind of what could have happened to their precious little boy. Dad, Joseph, was assigned to the parking lot and without finding Matthew there, he rushed back to the meeting spot. His wife hadn't found Matthew. Grandma hadn't found Matthew. But then came Grandpa holding Matthew's hand. He writes this. He said, our hearts leapt for joy. Interestingly enough, he says, Matthew was untraumatized. But then came he hadn't been crying. To him, there had not been a problem. He writes, I asked my father where he had found him. The candy counter, Grandpa said. You should have seen him. His eyes came just about as high as the candy. He held his hands behind his back and moved his head back and forth Surveying all of the luscious options. Nothing wrong. Little Matthew didn't look lost. He hadn't even known he was lost. He was oblivious to the extreme danger he was in. How many times... Do we get in a place of Matthew? When we get our attention off of God, and we begin to focus on all the fun things of the world, the things that don't cause us challenge, the things that we get addicted to, things that our eyes get focused on, things that don't really matter, and we think everything is perfect 
but we are oblivious to how we, through our constant act of putting God second and third, we are oblivious to the danger that we're living in. We're going to sing a song. And I'd like to invite us, before we do, to bow our heads. Would you do that for me? Just bow your heads, everyone. I'm guessing that some of us have felt that we were exactly where the Israelites were in this story. We had good intentions to follow God, but slowly you lost your passion. Slowly you lost your direction. And might I suggest that this would be a wonderful time this morning to recommit your passion to follow Jesus. Recommit yourself. Recommit your family to say, God, I put you second. Today, I recommit myself to put you first. And with all heads bowed, could I just ask if someone is sensing the movement of the Holy Spirit to do that, would you just raise your hand, Pastor, pray for me? Just raise your hand this morning. Thank you. As we sing this chorus, if you would just feel free enough, either at your chair or if you'd like to come down to the altar, we'd love to gather around you and pray for you as you recommit yourself to the Father. Please come as we sing. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to
Heavenly Father, you're inviting us today to take steps of commitment and priority. There are many here this morning that I'm confident you have begun to touch areas in their lives that they put second, even fourth, maybe even forgotten you. But as we read your story, we see how with great grace and mercy, you continue to invite the Israelites into a journey back to you. Sure, there were times that you caused them to go through the rough periods in order to see you waiting for them. There were times that you blessed them and gave them every resources they need. There are other times that you took the resources away. But all of these times was so that they could see that you desired to have fellowship with them to the same degree that Adam and Eve had when you lived amongst them. So, Father, even today, you're inviting us on a brand new journey of committing to you our resources, committing to you our health, our time, giving you our money, inviting us to give to you first and only then pay bills because you deserve our best. And so, Father, today we as a church, we make a decision even corporately as a church, we will serve you and you only. You will be our highest priority, worshiping you and taking bold steps to affect our community. That's what we decide to do publicly. We will give you our first and our best. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Would you receive this benediction? Let the words of Ezra describe, describing the day the Israelites beginning the long-awaited building of the temple be our benediction today. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel 
endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's go in peace. For he's already gone before you. Please be dismissed quietly.